0: this is a reading from Swami Vivekananda's lectures based on the raja yoga now the raja yoga is basically what is understood as the king of all yogas Um, one thing to keep in mind the raja yoga is never practiced without a proper guru so this is uh, just to present an intellectual contemplation And these are all based on Patanjali's aphorisms on yoga. So this is Vivekananda's explanation about Raja Yoga. Again, Raja Yoga is never instructed or worked on without a guru. So please do keep that in mind. There might be certain practices mentioned while I read the book. Uh, My suggestion would be not to follow it and try to do things. You know as a novice I start with the introductory chapter I'm going to just uh, make the introductory chapter a little concise all our knowledge is based upon experience what we call inferential knowledge in which we go from the less to the more general or from the general to the particular has experience as its basis in what are called the exact sciences People easily find the truth because it appeals to the particular experiences of every human being. The scientist does not tell you to believe in anything, but he has certain results which come from his own experiences and reasoning on them when he asks us to believe in his conclusions. He appeals to some universal experience of humanity. In every exact science, there is a basis which is common to all humanity so that we can at once see the truth or the fallacy of the conclusions drawn therefrom now the question is has religion any such basis or not i shall have to answer the question both in the affirmative and in the negative religion as it is generally taught all over the world is said to be based upon faith and belief and in most cases consists only of different sets of theories and that is the reason why we find all religions quarrelling with another. One man says there's a great being sitting above the clouds and governing the whole universe and he asks me to believe that solely on the authority of his assertion. In the same way, I may have my own ideas which I'm asking others to believe and if they ask a reason, I cannot give them any. That is why religion and metaphysical philosophy have a bad name nowadays. Every educated man seems to say, Oh, these religions are only bundles of theories without any standard to judge them. In the first place, if you analyze all the various religions of the world, you will find that these are divided into two classes, those with a book and those without a book. Those with a book are the strongest and have the largest number of followers. Those without books have mostly died out and the few new ones have very small followings. Yet in all of them we find one consensus of opinion that the truths that they teach are the results of the experiences of particular persons. Thus it is clear that all the religions of the world have been built upon that one universal and adamantine foundation of all our knowledge direct experience. The teachers all saw God they all saw their own souls, they saw their future, they saw their eternity and what they saw, they preached. Only there is this difference that by most of these religions, especially in modern times, a peculiar claim is made. Namely, that those experiences are impossible at the present day. They were only possible with a few men who were the founders of the religions that subsequently bore their name. At the present time, these experiences have become obsolete And therefore, we now have to take religion on belief. This I entirely deny. If there has been one experience in this world in any particular branch of knowledge, it absolutely follows that that experience has been possible millions of times before and will be repeated eternally. Uniformity is the rigorous law of nature. What once happened can happen always. The teachers of the science of yoga therefore declare that religion is not only based upon the experience of ancient times but that no man can be religious until he has the same perceptions himself. Yoga is the science which teaches us how to get these perceptions. The science of Raja Yoga proposes to put before humanity a practical and scientifically worked out method of reaching this truth. In the first place, every science must have its own method of investigation. If you want to become an astronomer and sit down and cry astronomy, astronomy, it'll never come to you. The same with chemistry. A certain method must be followed. Each science must have its own methods. I could preach you thousands of sermons, but they would not make you religious until you practice the method. These are the truths of the sages of all countries, of all ages, of men, pure and unselfish, who had no motive but to do good to the world. They all declare that they have found some truth higher than what the senses can bring to us and they invite verification. They ask us to take up the method and practice honestly and then if we do not find this higher truth, we will have the right to say that there is no truth in the claim. But before we have done that, we are not rational in denying the truth of their assertions. So we must work faithfully using the prescribed methods, and light will come. The science of Raj Yoga, in the first place, proposes to give us such means of observing the internal states. The instrument is the mind itself. The power of attention, when properly guided and directed towards the internal world, will analyze the mind and illumine facts for us. The powers of the mind are like rays of light dissipated. When they are concentrated, they illumine. This is our only means of knowledge. What is the use of such knowledge? In the first place, knowledge itself is the highest reward of knowledge. And secondly, there is also utility in it. It will take away all our misery. When, by analysing his own mind, man comes face to face, as it were, with something which is never destroyed, something which is by its own nature, eternally pure and perfect, he will no more be miserable and no more unhappy. All misery comes from fear, from unsatisfied desire. Man will find that he never dies, and then he will have no more fear of death. There is only one method by which to attain this knowledge, that which is called concentration. The astronomer concentrates all the energies of his mind and projects them through his telescope upon the skies, the stars, the sun and the moon and they give their secrets to him. The more I can concentrate my thoughts on the matter on which I am talking to you, the more light I can throw upon you. You are listening to me and the more you concentrate your thoughts, the more clearly you will grasp what I have to say. How has all the knowledge in the world been gained but by concentration of the powers of the mind? The world is ready to give up its secrets if we only know how to knock, how to give it the necessary blow. The strength and the force of the blow come through concentration. There is no limit to the power of the human mind. The more concentrated it is, the more power is brought to bear on one point. That is the secret. It is easier to concentrate the mind on external things. The mind naturally goes outwards. But not so in the case of religion or psychology or metaphysics where the subject and the object are one. The object is internal, the mind itself is the object, and it is necessary to study the mind itself. Mind studying mind. This is what Raja Yoga proposes to teach. The goal of all its teaching is how to concentrate the mind, then how to discover the innermost recesses of your own minds, then how to generalize their contents and form our own conclusions from them. It therefore never asks the question what our religion is, whether we are atheists, whether we are Christians, Jews or Buddhists. We are human beings, that is sufficient. Every human being has the right and the power to seek for religion. Every human being has the right to ask the reason why and to have his question answered by himself, if he only takes the trouble. A part of the practice is physical, but in the main it is mental. As we proceed, we shall find how intimately the mind is connected with the body. If we believe that the mind is simply a finer part of the body and the mind acts upon the body, then it stands to reason that the body must react upon the mind. If the body is sick, the mind becomes sick also. If the body is healthy, the mind remains healthy and strong. When one is angry, the mind becomes disturbed. Similarly, when the mind is disturbed, the body also becomes disturbed. For majority of the people, the mind is under the control of the body, their mind being very little developed. The vast mass of humanity is very little removed from the animals. Not only so, but in many instances the power of control in them is little higher than that of the lower animals. We have very little command of our minds. Therefore, to bring that command about, to get that control of our body and mind, we must take certain physical helps. When the body is sufficiently controlled, we can attempt the manipulation of the mind. By manipulating the mind, we shall be able to bring it under our control, make it work as we like and compel it to concentrate its powers as we desire. According to the Raja Yogi, the external world is but the gross form of the eternal or subtle. The finer is always the cause, the grosser the effect. So the external world is the effect, the internal the cause. In the same way, external forces are simply the grosser parts of which the internal forces are the finer. A man who has discovered and learned how to manipulate the internal forces will get the whole of nature under his control. The yogi proposes to himself no less a task than to master the whole universe to control the whole of nature. The end and aim of all science is to find the unity, the one out of which the manifold is being manufactured, the one existing as many. Raja Yoga proposes to start from the internal world to study internal nature and through that control the world, both internal and external. It is a very old attempt. India has never been in its special stronghold, but it was also tempted by other nations. In Western countries, it was regarded as mysticism, and people who wanted to practice it were either burned or killed as witches and sorcerers. In India, for various reasons, it fell into the hands of persons who destroyed 90% of the knowledge and tried to make a great secret of the remainder. In the modern times, many so-called teachers have arisen in the West worse than those of India because the latter knew something, while these modern exponents know nothing. Anything that is secret and mysterious in these systems of yoga should be rejected at once. The best guide in life is strength. In religion, as in all matters, discard everything that weakens you and have nothing to do with it. Mystery mongering weakens the human brain. For time, it was discovered more than 4,000 years ago. Yoga was perfectly formulated and preached in India. It is a striking fact that the more modern the commentator, the greater the mistakes he makes, while the more ancient the writer, the more rational he is. Most of the modern writers talk of all sorts of mystery. Thus, yoga fell into the hands of few people who made it secret instead of letting the full blaze of daylight and reason fall upon it. They did so, so that they might have the powers to themselves. In the first place, there is no mystery in what I teach. What little I know, I will tell you, so far as I can reason it out, and I will do so, But as to what I do not know, I will simply tell you what the books say. The yogi proposes to attain the fine state of perception in which he can perceive all the different mental states. Certain regulations as to food are necessary. We must use the food which brings us the purest mind. All the forces that are working in this body have been produced out of food. We see that every day. If you begin to fast, first your body will get weak, the physical forces will suffer. Then after a few days, the mental forces will suffer also. First memory will fail, then comes a point when you are not able to think, much less to pursue any course of reasoning. We therefore have to take care of what sort of food we eat at the beginning and when we have got strength enough. When our practice is well advanced, we need not be so careful in this respect. A yogi must avoid the two extremes of luxury and austerity. He must not fast, nor torture his flesh. He who does so, says the Gita, cannot be a yogi. He who fasts, he who keeps awake, he who sleeps much, he who works too much, he who does not work, none of these can be a yogi. First Steps Raja Yoga is divided into eight steps. The first is Yama, non-killing, truthfulness, non-stealing, continence, and non-receiving of any gifts. Next is Niyama, cleanliness, contentment, austerity, study and self-surrender to God. Then comes Asana or posture, Pranayama or control of Prana. Patiyara or restraint of the senses from their objects, dharana or fixing the mind on a spot, dhyana or meditation, and samadhi or super consciousness. The yama and niyama, as we see, are moral trainings. Without these as the basis, no practice of yoga will succeed. As these two become established, the yogi, the yogi will begin to realize the fruits of his practice. Without these, it will never bear fruit. A yogi must not think of injuring anyone by thought, word or deed. Mercy shall not be for men alone, but shall go beyond and embrace the whole world. The next step is asana, posture. A series of exercises, physical and mental, is to be gone through every day until certain higher states are reached. Therefore, it is quite necessary that we should find a posture in which we can remain long. That posture which is the easiest for one should be the one chosen. For thinking, a certain posture may be very easy for one man, while to another it may be very difficult. We will find later on that during the study of these psychological matters, a good deal of activity goes on in the body. Nerve currents will have to be displaced and given a new channel. New sorts of vibrations will begin, the whole constitution will be remodeled as it were, but the main part of the activity will lie along the spinal column, so that the one thing necessary for the posture is to hold the spinal column free. Sitting erect Holding the three parts, the chest, neck and head in a straight line. Let the whole weight of the body be supported by the ribs, and then you have an easy, natural posture with the spine straight. You will easily see that you cannot think very high thoughts with the chest in this. With the chest in. This portion of the yoga is a little similar to the hatha yoga which deals entirely with the physical body. Its aim being to make the physical body very strong. We have nothing to do with it here because its practices are very difficult and cannot be learnt in a day and after all do not lead to much spiritual growth. There is not one muscle in the body over which a man cannot establish a perfect control. The heart can be made to stop a go on at his bidding and each part of the organism can be similarly controlled. The result of this branch of yoga is to make men live long. Health is the chief idea The one goal of hatha yogis but that is all a banyan tree lives sometimes five thousand years but it is a banyan tree and nothing more so if a man lives long he's only a healthy animal one or two ordinary lessons of the hatha yogis are very useful for instance some of you will find it a good thing for headaches to drink cold water through the nose as soon as you get up in the morning After one has learnt to have a firm erect seat, one has to perform, according to certain schools, a practice called the purifying of the nerves. This part has been rejected by some as not belonging to Raja Yoga, but as so great an authority as the commentator Shankaracharya advises it, I think fit that it should be mentioned and I will quote his own directions from his commentary on the Shvetashvatara Upanishad. The mind, whose gross has been cleared away by pranayama, becomes fixed in Brahman, therefore pranayama is declared. First the nerves are to be purified, then comes the power to practice pranayama. Stop the right nostril with the thumb. Through the left nostril fill in air according to capacity. Then, without any interval, throw the air out through the right nostril, closing the left one. Again, inhaling through the right nostril, eject through the left, according to capacity. Practicing this three or five times, at four hours of the day, before dawn, during midday, in the evening, and at midnight, in fifteen days or a month purity of the nerves is attained. Then begins pranayama. Practice is absolutely necessary. You may sit down and listen to me by the hour every day, but if you do not practice, you will not get one step further. It all depends on practice. We never understand these things until we experience them. We will have to see and feel them for ourselves. There are several obstructions to practice. The first obstruction is an unhealthy body. If the body is not in a fit state, the practice will be obstructed. Therefore, we have to keep the body in good health. We have to take care of what we eat and drink and what we do. We must not forget that health is only a means to an end. If health were the end, we would be like animals. Animals rarely become unhealthy. The second obstruction is doubt. We always feel doubtful about things we do not see. Man cannot live upon words, however he may try. So doubt comes to us as to whether there is any truth in these things or not. Even the best of us will doubt sometimes. With practice, within a few days a little glimpse will come, enough to give one encouragement and hope. As a certain commentator on yoga philosophy says, when one proof is obtained, however little that may be, it will give us faith in the whole teaching of yoga. For instance, after the first few months of practice, you will begin to find you can read another's thoughts. They will come to you in a picture form. Perhaps you will hear something happening at a long distance, when you concentrate your mind with a wish to hear. These glimpses will come by little bits at first but enough to give you faith and strength and hope. For instance, if you concentrate your thoughts on the tip of your nose, you will begin to smell most beautiful fragrance which will be enough to show you that there are certain mental perceptions that can be made obvious without the contact of physical objects. But we must always remember that these are only the means, the aim, the end. The goal of all this training is liberation of the soul, absolute control of nature and nothing short of it must be the goal. We must be the masters, and not the slaves of nature. Neither body nor mind must be our master, nor must we forget that the body is mine, and not I the body's. A god and a demon went to learn about from the self from a great sage. They studied with him for a long time. At last the sage told them, You yourselves are the being you are seeking. Both of them thought that their bodies were the self, then they went back to their people, quite satisfied, and said, We have learned everything that was to be learnt. Eat, drink, and be merry. We are the Self. There is nothing beyond us. The nature of the demon was ignorant, clouded, so he never inquired any further, but was perfectly contented with the idea that he was God, that by the Self was meant the body. The God had purer nature. He at first committed the mistake of thinking, I, this body, am Brahman. So keep it strong and healthy and well-dressed and give it all sorts of enjoyments. But in a few days he found out that that could not be the meaning of the sage, their master. There must be something higher. So he came back and said, Sir, did you teach me that this body was the self? If so, I see all the bodies die. The self cannot die. The sage said, find it out. Thou art that. Then the god thought, that the vital forces which work the body were what the sage meant, but after a time he found out that if he ate, these vital forces remained strong, but if he starved, they became weak. The god then went back to the sage and said, sir, do you mean that the vital forces are the self? The sage said, find out for yourself, thou art that. The god returned home once more thinking that it was the mind perhaps that was the self, but in a short while he sought that the thoughts were so various, now good, again bad, the mind was too changeable to be the self. He went back to the sage and said, Sir, I do not think that the mind is the self. Did you mean that? No, replied the sage, thou art that, find out for yourself. The god went home and at last found that he was the self, beyond all thought, one without birth or death, whom the sword cannot pierce or the fire burn, whom the air cannot dry or the water melt, the bigging lean and endless, the immovable, the intangible, the omnipotent being, that it was neither the body nor the mind, but beyond them all, so he was satisfied. But the poor demon did not get the truth, owing to his fondness for the body. The world has a good many of these demonic natures, but there are some gods, too. If one proposes to teach any science to increase the power of sense enjoyment, one finds multitudes ready for it. If one undertakes to show the supreme goal, one finds few to listen to him. Very few have the power to grasp the higher, fewer still the patience to attain it. There are a few also who know that even if the body can be made to live for a thousand years, the result in the end will be the same. When the forces that hold it together go away, the body must fall. No man was ever born who could stop his body one moment from changing. Body is the name of a series of changes. As in a river the masses of water are changing before you, every moment and new masses are coming yet taking similar form, so is it with this body. Yet the body must be kept strong and healthy. It is the best instrument we have. The human body is the greatest body in the universe and a human being the greatest being. Man is higher than all animals, than all angels. None is greater than man. Even the Devas or gods will have to come down again and attain to salvation through the human body. Man alone attains to perfection, not even the Devas. The lower creation the animal is dull and manufactured Mostly out of tamas. Animals cannot have any high thoughts, nor can the angels or devas. The devas cannot attain to direct freedom without human birth. In human society, in the same way, too much wealth or too much poverty is a great impediment to the higher development of the soul. It is from the middle classes that the great ones of the world come. Here the forces are very equally adjusted and balanced. Returning to our subject, we come next to pranayama, controlling the breath. What has that to do with concentrating the powers of the mind? Breath is like the flywheel of this machine, the body. In a big engine you find the flywheel first moving and that motion is conveyed to finer and finer machinery until the most delicate and finest mechanism in the machine is in motion. That breath is the flywheel supplying and regulating the motive power to everything in this body. There was once a minister to a great king He fell into disgrace. The king, as a punishment, ordered him to be shut up in the top of a very high tower. This was done and the minister was left there to perish. He had a faithful wife, however, who came to the tower at night and called to her husband at the top to know what she could do to help him. He told her to return to the tower the following night and bring with her a long rope, some stout twine, pack thread, silken thread, a beetle and a little honey. The good wife obeyed her husband and brought him the desired articles. The husband directed her to attach the silken thread firmly to the beetle, then to smear its horns with a drop of honey and to set it free on the wall of the tower. With its head pointing upwards, she obeyed all these instructions and the beetle started on its long journey. Smelling the honey ahead, it slowly crept onwards in the hope of reaching the honey until at last it reached the top of the tower when the minister grasped the beetle and got possession of the silken thread. He told his wife to tie the other end to the pack thread and after he had drawn up the pack thread, he repeated the process with the stout twine and lastly with the rope. Then the rest was easy. The minister descended from the tar by means of the rope and made his escape. In this body of ours, the breath motion is the silken thread. By laying hold of it and learning to grasp it, we grasp the pack thread Of the nerve currents and from those the stout twine of our thoughts and lastly the rope of prana controlling which we reach freedom. We do not know anything about our own bodies we cannot know. At best we can take a dead body and cut it in pieces and there are some who can take a live animal and cut it in pieces in order to see what is inside the body. Still that has nothing to do with our own bodies we know very little about them. Why do we not? because our attention is not discriminating enough to catch the very fine movements that are going on within. We can know of them only when the mind becomes more subtle and enters as it were deeper into the body. To get the subtle perception we have to begin with the grosser perceptions. We have to get hold of that which is setting the whole engine in motion. That is the prana the most obvious manifestation of which is the breath. Then along with the breath, we shall slowly enter the body, which will enable us to find out about the subtle forces, the nerve currents that are moving all over the body. As soon as we perceive and learn to feel them, we shall begin to get control over them and over the body. The mind is also set in motion by these different nerve currents, so at last we shall reach the state of perfect control over the body and the mind. Knowledge is power, we have to get this power. So we must begin at the beginning with pranayama, restraining the prana. This pranayama is a long subject and will take several lessons to illustrate it thoroughly. We shall take it part by part. We shall gradually see the reasons for each exercise and what forces in the body are set in motion. All these things will come to us but it requires constant practice and the proof will come by practice. No amount of reasoning which I can give you will be proof to you until you have demonstrated it for yourselves. As soon as you begin to feel these currents in motion, all over you doubts will vanish but it requires hard practice every day. You must practice at least twice every day and the best times are towards the morning and the evening. When night passes into day and day into night, a state of relative calmness ensues. The early morning and the early evening are the two periods of calmness. Your body will have a like tendency to become calm at those times. We should take advantage of the natural condition and begin then to practice. Make it a rule not to eat until you have practiced. If you do this, the sheer force of hunger will break your laziness. In India, they teach children not to eat until they have practiced or worshipped, and it becomes natural to them after a time. A boy will not feel hungry until he has bathed and practiced. Those of you can afford it will do better to have a room for this practice alone. Do not sleep in that room. It must be kept holy. You must not enter the room until you have bathed and are perfectly clean in body and mind. Place flowers in that room always. They are the best surroundings for a yogi. Also pictures that are pleasing. Burn incense morning and evening. Have no quarrelling, no anger, no unholy thoughts in that room. Only allow those people to enter it who are of the same thought as you. Then gradually there will be an atmosphere of holiness in the room so that when you are miserable, sorrowful, doubtful, or your mind is disturbed, the very fact of entering that room will make you calm. This was the idea of a temple and the church, and in some temples and churches you will find it even now. But in the majority of them, the very idea has been lost. The idea is that by keeping holy vibrations, the place becomes and remains illumined. Those who cannot afford to have a room set apart can practice practice anywhere they like. Sit in a straight posture. The first thing to do is to send a current of holy thought to all creation. Mentally repeat, let all things be happy, let all beings be peaceful, let all beings be blissful. So do it to the east, south, north and west. The more you do that, the better you will feel yourself. You will find at last that the easiest way to make ourselves healthy is to see that others are healthy. And the easiest way to make ourselves happy is to see that others are happy. After doing that, those who believe in God should pray, not for money, not for health, nor for heaven. Pray for knowledge and light. Every other prayer is selfish. Then the next thing to do is to think of your own body and see that it is strong and healthy. It is the best instrument you have. Think of it as being as strong as adamant and that with the help of this body you will cross the ocean of life. Freedom is never to be reached by the weak. Throw away all weakness, tell your body that it is strong, tell your mind it is strong and you have unbounded faith and hope in yourself.